0: Hi, Jeff here. Before we get to this one, a quick program note. Last week's episode about how AI could bring some fundamental shifts in education had us thinking about what it means to be human. And that called to mind this episode that we first ran this summer an interview with a philosopher who thinks that schools should teach even the youngest kids how to wrestle with deep, meaty questions about who we are and why we're here. So, yes, this is a rerun. It's a little break for us to get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday this week. But I'm excited to share this one again, in case you missed it. And maybe it'll give you some fodder for discussion at your own holiday meal. Hope that's a great one. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge, we're a nonprofit newsroom covering education. Little kids, they make great philosophers. In fact, philosophy professor Scott Hershewitz argues that kids make better philosophers than most adults.
1: Kids are new to the world and they're constantly puzzled by it. Um, they're filled with questions. They're noticing things that don't make sense or at least don't make sense to them. And they're trying to puzzle it out. And their playfulness
0: is a big advantage.
1: They're fearless, like, as little thinkers, right? That um, they're not worried about seeming silly. Silly is kind of the business they're in. So when they have ideas, they just try them out and they share them. And all of this, I think, gives them a kind of, like, fresh perspective on the world and a really creative perspective, on the world that it's actually hard for adults to, to recapture um, because, you know, we are sometimes worried about seeming silly. And like many of the deepest philosophical questions are questions as a grown up that you might seem a, seem a little bit silly if you spend time talking about.
0: Hershewitz worries, though, that too often teachers and other adults brush off or ignore kids when they're asking big things like, what are our lives for? Or what happens when we die? Or are we all just a figment of someone else's dream? This professor teaches philosophy at the University of Michigan, and he has two small kids of his own, Rex and Hank. They're now 13 and 10. And his conversations with his own kids sparked him to write a book highlighting the philosophical potential of youngsters. It's called Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with Kids the book ends up being a playful way to get into big philosophical issues about justice, authority, language. It's actually a really funny book, too. I recently connected with Hershewitz to ask why he thinks it's important to nurture these philosophical instincts in kids and what advice he has for educators about how to do it. I started by asking for an example of one of those moments with his own kids that inspired the book.
1: When Rex was four... Um, we were sitting at dinner one night and he just sort of wondered aloud whether he might be dreaming his entire life. And I got all excited because this is a question that, you know, in Western philosophy is famous because Descartes made it famous, right? Like he was in this, engaged in this project of doubting everything that he knew and one technique he had for doubting things was to imagine that he might be dreaming things. But actually like this tradition of thought goes way beyond Descartes. It goes all the way back um, at least to an ancient uh, Chinese text called the Zhuangzi, which tells the story of Zhuang Zhu, who's like um, one night dreams he's a butterfly. He's like floating and floating around and flying, and uh, and then in the morning he wakes up and he's solid, unmistakable Zhuang Zhu. But then he wonders, is he Zhuang Zhu who dreamed he was a butterfly, or is he a butterfly who's now dreaming that he's Zhuang Zhu? And um, you know, like this is a thought. Right. um, That recurs throughout history, this sort of question of how do we tell what's real? How do we distinguish the things we dream or the things we hallucinate right, from the things that are actually real or or, or even can we? And like Rex isn't uncommon. He's not aberrational. Lots of little kids play around with the boundaries between um, reality and dreams, reality and make believe um, uh, in just the way that philosophers have throughout history. (laughs)
0: So, so you have this, these moments that you were just seeing in your own kids that it sounds like you, for you, unlike many parents, for you, you're like, oh, that's, that's Descartes. So from your, from your, you know, training and, and long training with the philosophy, you sort of saw something maybe that most parents don't see. That's
1: right. And that's what I like try to persuade parents of uh, and teachers. It's not that there's something special about my kids. It's just that because of my background in philosophy, I hear what kids are up to a little bit differently than others. Because like you say, I have this sort of education and these traditions of thought that allows me to recognize like the deep philosophical insight when it, when it comes out of my kid. But all kids are doing this. I'll give you another one of my Favorite stories. There was a philosopher named Gareth Matthews, who I think of as the first person who was really like caught on to the idea that kids are talented as philosophers. And he talked to a lot of kids. He also talked to parents and collected stories about the philosophical conversations they had with their kids. And he told this story of a little boy named Ian, who um, was, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly old, like three or four years old, and. And Ian's family had another family that came over for dinner. And when it came time after dinner for the kids to watch some television, they watched the show that the the visiting kids wanted to watch and not Ian. And this was like in the days before we were streaming or recording things on TV. So Ian missed his favorite show. And he was very upset about this. And after the other family went home, Ian asked his mother, he said... Why is it better for 3 people to be selfish than for 1 person to be selfish? Oh, cool. And I just love his question because it's like like to a grown up you think oh of course if if like more people want to watch one show that's the show that we'll watch. Right. But but Ian is not taking that for granted. He wants to know, you know, like there's a kind of challenge to economists, the way economists think about the world. They tell us maximize the satisfaction of people's preferences. And Ian's asking why, if they're just being selfish, why does it matter that there are more of them? There's also a kind of challenge to democracy here. Right. The thought that when we're trying to coordinate what we should do is cast a vote and whoever has the most votes wins. And, you know, Ian's mother in the moment was flummoxed. She didn't know what to say. And that's eventually why she reported the question to Matthews. And I think a lot of parents or a lot of teachers have these moments where especially young kids say something that kind of catches them out, leaves them flummoxed, unsure how to respond. And so they kind of miss the opportunity to have a really good conversation and just even miss noticing right, that like, this child is challenging something in a deep and important way.
0: You know, I think a lot of people listening can, can you know, sympathize with that reaction, right? Uh, and being flummoxed. So, what kind of mindset is required for you know educators and others who deal with kids to be able to to raise children as philosophers, as you say? And how do you make that a practice?
1: So, I think the the most important thing is just to listen to kids and to take their ideas seriously. Um, Matthews was fond of saying that when you like there's something special right um, about the kinds of conversations you can have a, with the kid when they raise a question that's philosophical like if your child is asking you something scientific right chances are you know the answer and you can just tell them how that works you know like why does water bubble when it's boiling well you might remember that explanation from your science class or maybe you'll go to google and you can look up an explanation but but you're in the role very much teacher. It's a kind of hierarchical relationship. I have this information that you don't, right? But when a child asks something, as they often do, like, what are our lives for? Or what happens when we die? Or am I dreaming my entire life? Um, Chances are, you don't really know the answer either, right? You may have ideas, you may have guesses, you may have thoughts, or you might not, right? But there's a kind of collaborative conversation that's possible. And part of what I want to encourage people to do is see young kids as people with whom you can have collaborative conversations. Right. So one of my favorite like tricks with my kid, I don't even think of it as much like a trick, is to say, well what do you think? Right? Like I won't start the conversation off. Right? Often if they've asked the question, they have some ideas about it. Right. So hear what their ideas are and take them seriously even seriously enough maybe to challenge them and think them through together but i think you i think the mindset you want to be in is i'm going to treat this this little person like they might have something important to say and treat them like a conversational equal
0: i mean it the anecdotes are so you know fun and there's so much humor in the in the book but I do have to ask as a parent myself of a couple little kids, you know, do you ever struggle with it though, with this, with actually pulling off that in the moment of like busy lives and and why, 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 or whatever the questions are
1: coming. For sure. And I I don't think this is something, these kinds of conversations are conversations to have all the time. Um, You know, I say at one point in the book, you shouldn't imagine that like, you know, Rex, who at the time I wrote the book was, you know, like, you know, four through eight or nine, like, I don't, you shouldn't imagine that we sit by the fire, like, you know, like, you know, with our brandy and, you know, discuss, like, that's not how this goes, right? Um, you know, it's um, often the conversations are short, they just last a couple minutes, because that's how long the attention span of a young kid might be. But like the conversations that start short can maybe be returned to later and they can be maybe returned to in moments of calm reflection. So my favorite times to have conversations with my kids are when we're driving in the car, um, or at bedtime when they kind of want to extend the day a little bit and things are kind of quiet. And so if something interesting came up during the day, then maybe those are times when you can revisit and say, hey, you said this before, what do you think about that? Often they're up for engaging those conversations at greater lengths. But the payoff can be great. So I told you the story of of Rex wondering whether he was dreaming his entire life, and he got really interested in that. Um, and periodically, like... You know, every once in a while, over a period of years, he'd get interested in the thought again. And, and the way it would work is he'd try to come up with ways to prove that he wasn't dreaming. And then I'd try to come up and then I'd try to refute right, his argument to show him that he still couldn't tell whether or not he was dreaming. So one day, years later, actually, so it started when he was four and and, and then he was in second grade. We're walking home from school. And um, he says to me, wouldn't it be weird if you and I were having the same dream, and and we have to be having um, the same dream if we're talking to each other, and I said, yeah, that would be weird. But what if I'm not real? What if I'm just a character in your dream? And you could tell this kind of like this thought like blew his mind, and he started to repeat. It. He's like, so you might not be real. I said, that's right. And he said, what about my friends? I said, maybe they're not real either and then just as we were having this conversation we got to our house and we turned into the driveway and my wife julie had arrived home with our younger son hank and rex looked at her and he said what about mommy and i said she might not be real either and he said then i don't want to wake up which is like the sweetest thing ever about his relationship with her. I mean, says something maybe also about his relationship with me that he was happy to let go of the idea that I might be real. Um, But also it was such like, it was also a moment of deep philosophical insight, right? Like, There's always a question philosophers have of like, what should we make of this skepticism? Is it significant in our lives? And Rex had arrived at a point where he thought, oh, right, there are certain things that I value even if they're not real, I'd be happy to persist in the delusion um, so long as I continue to have my mom.
0: Um, no, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I know in the book you point out that this is like something that people talk about as an idea that philosophers in a a grown-up level discuss about whether we're all living in a simulation and whether that would matter. So it's super, super interesting. There's another side to that, though, which is, you know, um, My wife actually works at a at a school sometimes, and and encounters you know um, a mix of a mix of kids uh, from all kinds of different backgrounds. And one thing that she encounters a lot is you know depending on the adults' values and mindsets, some really believe you know that there should be more answers or there should be answers given to kids, and that not everything can just be this Socratic kind of like follow up and relativism. And so I guess. What would you say to somebody who kind of worries about too much of this in in an education setting and that, that somehow that might put their kids at, at a certain kind of risk in a way of like not having a sort of solid boundaries that they can feel like good about, you know, or feel...
1: So I guess I have like a constellation of thoughts. So um sometimes like when a kid we're talking before about like a kid who wants to know like the answer to a scientific question like why is that water boiling um I believe in you know giving kids like the straight up answers and actually I think they can handle more than adults often think that they can um and so um you know if your kid wants to know you know, something scientific or something historical, right, and you know the answer, then I think you share the answer with them. I was, I I was the, I'm the son of a public health advisor from the CDC. You know, when we had health related questions, like even sex related questions, he just gave us the straight clinical answer, right? And I believe that's like just a matter of respect for your kids, right? That you share answers to questions like that. Um, But I also, even actually with science, I want my kids to know um, that it's okay to question things and to challenge ideas, and then what to do when you have a question or when you have a challenge, right? So I think like, especially a lot of teachers know what to do when a kid is challenging something scientific or um, something mathematical, right? Like, um, you help them investigate the world. You know, you like figure out the experiment, or you show them the reasoning, right behind, right why the answer to the math problem is this way rather than that way. Um, so I very much want my kids to know that like um, everything is open to question, right? But 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 it's not relativism, which is the the word you use. It's not we each get our own opinion, right? As I say in the book, like. Um, you know, like Americans like to say everyone's entitled to their own opinion. That's not true in my house, right? If you have an opinion, right, my kids know that you need to be able to defend your opinion, right? Um, and that like, you're expected to have evidence and arguments in support of your opinion, or at least to be able to imagine what sorts of evidence and arguments might vindicate your opinion. And sometimes you might be put to your proof. And I think it's important um, like to, to raise kids that way, to be willing to question things, but then also willing to investigate and to help them learn how to investigate. And also to, to recognize that the things they think are also subject to question and subject to investigation. And I worry a little bit about when I hear about grownups who think that we just need to like tamp things down and get these kids to do what they're told. I think a lot of problems we have around here is because people are too willing to go along. Um, that uh, with what they're told and not willing to question and not willing to investigate and follow evidence and arguments where, it le- where they lead.
0: No. And I think honestly, it's, it feels like there's a thread. What I've, what I love about your book too, is there's so many big ideas that it gets at in a, a way of a lighthearted look at, you know, this kind of you know, what, we can learn from kids and also some basics of philosophy where, you know, these things have been talked about for a while, but at the same time, we are really, it seems like there's a way in which like the kind of culture war as it's impacting education right now is almost like a little bit at stake in this or a little bit, you know, kind of underlying this in a way of like what, whether, whether kids get treated as philosophers or like, you know, um, taught, a certain set of of rigid things that people do find comfort in and, and have like a sense of like wanting to have a sense of, um, you know, something to hold on to in a time of chaos and unpredictability sometimes. So I guess, what do you tell, ed- Oh, how do you help educators or what do you say to educators and people who want to, you know, kind of help people move away from this idea of a comfort of taking sides or something? Yeah, like
1: that? you know, Um, It's interesting. Like, I I think that, um, you know, we may all have different things that we kind of consider beyond the pale and places where we want to communicate our values to our children. So um, when this book first came out, I was having a conversation um, uh, like for a bookstore event with uh, my good friend Ibu Patel, who's the founder of a group called Interfaith America. And, like, the last chapter in Nasty British and Short is about God and whether God exists and, like, the kind of iterated conversations I've had with my kids about that question. And ibu said, actually, that's not a conversation I want to have with my kids. I don't consider that question up for debate. And he kind of reversed the challenge. He said, what are the conversations you don't want to have, right, with your kids? What don't you consider up for debate? And I realized, like, you know, I've got things, right, that I... Um, that like, at least in the first instance, I might think are not up for debate. Right. So like um, that everyone deserves to be treated with respect and that we all matter equally are kind of like red lines for me. If I thought my kids were challenging those ideas, I think I'd get really uncomfortable. Um, but I also think I'm committed enough to this project and have enough respect for my kids that though I'd be uncomfortable in the moment, I'd want to push past it. Right. And if I if my kid was really um, like challenging the idea that we sort of all matter equally, right? Like, I'd want to hear them defend the opposite idea, right? I'd want to hear them explain why they think that some people matter more than others. Um, And it would make me really uncomfortable. But here's why I think it'd be important to engage, right? Because if my child has those thoughts, they're not going to disappear just because I ignore them, right? Um, And so... Um, if I like, take them seriously and engage them and try and figure out what's driving them, then at least have the opportunity to respond right, and to engage in a conversation about it and maybe, maybe lead them to the views that I think are the better views to hold. But if I don't engage that conversation, there's no chance. And I kind of feel the same way. I was encouraging Ibu to feel the same way about doubts his kids might have about the existence of God. But right, if they have those doubts, they're not going to go away just because dad ignores them, right? Um, so an honest conversation, right, may be um, a way of getting your kids where you want them to go. It might not be, right, ultimately. Um, but uh, at least you'll be involved in a conversation <sighs> rather than um, rather than leaving to them to their own devices.
0: If if you had a magic wand. How would you change, you know, the education system to, to around the issues we're saying? Yeah.
1: yeah, I would love to see. Um, philosophy taught in schools. It is a uh, part of the curriculum in many other countries around the world. And there is a kind of um, small, but growing movement to have philosophy taught in American schools. There's a really wonderful organization called the philosophy learning and teaching organization that if like your listeners uh, would like to learn more, they've got tons of resources and hold lots of um, webinars and in-person events um, in training, uh, the train teachers to um to teach philosophically, I think there um, are potentially lots of benefits to it, right? One is that um, kids have this kind of innate disposition to philosophical reflection, to thinking about really big, important questions. And I think that um, like adults too often communicate that they don't value that. And so kids leave it behind as they get a little bit older. And I think we we could help our kids to stay deep thinkers. Um, if we showed them that we value this aspect of them and care about them uh, and care and care about engaging it so that's um, that's one um, uh, upside to it Um, another upside is like when you teach philosophy in schools you have the opportunity to cultivate norms of good conversations and good deliberations right so you teach people that um, you teach kids that um, we're going to take turns talking and we're going to listen to each other. And the first thing we do after someone else speaks is we make sure we understand what they said, right? Before we, going, before we go on to share their views. And we don't shout people down or just tell them that they're wrong, right? We respond with evidence and arguments and we offer them reasons and we do it all respectively. Like we have, as grown-ups in this country... A real problem having civil conversations across difficult divides. And so I have some hope that if we cultivated um, that kind of practice among our kids, that maybe in the long run, there would be positive payoffs for our culture in general. I'll also say for the teachers listening, it's just fun, right? So another website that people can visit is the Prindle Institute for Ethics has a website called Teaching Children Philosophy. And they have teaching modules for dozens and dozens of picture books, right? The picture books that are almost certainly in your classroom already. Um, and, you know, Bunny and um, uh, Frederick, and just like on and on, like a classic series of books. And for each of them, they describe some of the philosophical issues that are raised in those books, and then give you a list of 15 or 20 questions that you might ask kids as you read and you shouldn't try to ask all 15 or 20 you just pick out one or two as you go and you can get really phenomenal conversations. I've I've visited my kids classrooms and done bookstore events with little kids and and their parents sit in the back of the room amazed at how thoughtful the kids are and how eager for the conversation kids are and how excited they are to share their ideas. And so it's just a kind of in, in the in the time you would take to read them a story anyway. Right. If you ask some questions as you read, you'll be really impressed um, and enjoy the conversations that follow.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a point in your book where you mentioned that you had your college class over to your own house during a discussion of like the trolley problem, and then had the you know, kids train or something uh, simulate, you know, playfully the the this you know philosophical riddle puzzle that a lot of our listeners might know already um so it it seems like you've tried to do that in your own
1: (laughs) yeah well and so that's an example of kind of taking like this adult bit of philosophy and bringing it down to kids levels so i teach them to trolley problem and we take their train set and they arrange it and then they offer their views and actually if you go on youtube you can find other parents have had this idea too with little train sets but you know i'll give you one like concrete example um one of my favorite kids books is called the library lion right it's a book
0: i know that one Oh, yeah. you know the library go ahead. line. Yeah. No, but go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead and go ahead. remind our listeners. Yeah, so it's a book about um,
1: a book about a library who just one day, sh- or, or sorry, a line who just one day shows up in the library and people are concerned about this and they go to the librarian and she says, "Is he breaking any rules?" and And they say, no, Well, if you're not breaking any rules, then he can stay. Well, eventually in the story, he does break a rule, right? The librarian gets hurt and to get somebody's attention, to get her help, he roars as loud as he can roar. And then he banishes himself from the library because he broke the rule. He has to go. He can't be there anymore. And then, you know... Uh, The rest of the book is about like the search for the lion to bring him back to the library because he had a good reason for breaking the rule. Well, this book is near and dear to my heart because I'm a philosopher of law. Right. And so the questions uh, questions like that I discuss with my law students are what's the value of rules? Why do we have laws? What makes them important? Right. And then right when is it okay to break them right the answer is not never right like we've got long traditions of like civil disobedience and defenses of necessity right and so the kinds of conversations that i have with my adult law students you can also have with little kids right and they're super enthusiastic and they have lots of thoughts right about when it's okay to break rules and what the consequences for breaking rules should be. And so you can read that book in two different ways. You can read it just as a nice story and then close the book and move on. Or you can read it and just stop at the right moment and say, is it okay that the lion broke this rule, right? When is it okay? Have you ever broken a rule? Did you have a good reason? And and you'll get like um, really deep, insightful conversation going among elementary age kids.
0: You know one of the things that I hear educators struggle with a lot these days is it's not so much the the testable material the content of the you know curriculum but about the relational the relationships on the playground or in in behavior in class just the you know maybe it's coming out of the pandemic all the things going on in the in the society that are so um you know kind of unsettled these days and I guess I wonder, you know how how you feel like this philosophical bent or you know kind of cultivation that you're that you're arguing for fits into what educators are are kind of doing around outside of the academics in in helping people through these kinds of relationships. because you talk a little bit about some of these ideas in your book,
1: that's right, yeah, and actually, I would encourage people not to see those things like the sort of like handling the relationships and the behavioral issues as wholly separate from the academic education that they do. do. So chapters like two and three in the book are about uh, revenge and punishment. And, you know, grounded in the story with my little one, um, when he was three years old, we're hanging out one day, and he tells me this story, which comes out in a really truncated way. He said, the other day, this other kid at school, Caleb, called me a mean name. He called him a floofer-doofer. He's like, and then the teacher came to talk to me. I was like, well, why did she talk to you? And I was like, did she talk to Caleb too? Was, no, she just talked to me. And it's like, you know, I'm sort of like interrogating him in the way a lawyer would. And eventually, you know, I seem to draw out. He won't tell me what he did, but he retaliated in some way, right? Um, that attracted the teacher's attention. Um, And at some point, you know, I can't get him to tell me what he did, but I said, Hank, did you think it was okay to do something mean to Caleb because he said something mean to you? And he looked at me like I was the stupidest person in the world. And he said, yes, he called me a floofer doofer. So now like... It may be hardwired up into us. Like Lots of kids have the thought, if I've been mistreated, it's okay for me to strike back. And in the book, it's kind of an investigation with me and my kids of why are people interested in revenge? What are they getting out of revenge? What do they want out of it? And then once you identify maybe what the feelings are, what the attitudes are that lead people to want to exact some kind of revenge, then you can think about other ways of... Um, of achieving the same kinds of aims, the same kinds of ambitions. And so I actually think like you can have conversations with kids, maybe not right in the moment when they've done something wrong. That's probably not the right time for it. Right. But you can use picture books and stories and lead reflective conversations about how we feel when somebody does something mean to us and what we want to have happen and what would actually make things better. These are all conversations that you can have with kids. I don't think it's easy. I was in the principal's office or in the in the office at my son's elementary school, picking him up recently to go to a doctor's appointment. And there was like first one child came in that was injured and then the next child came in with the principal and the principal said, we're gonna go talk to her. We're gonna treat her like a person first. I thought that was great. We're gonna find out whether she's okay and what she needs to feel better. And, uh, and she got into the room with the boy who had injured her, and she said, don't you have something to say? And he said, nope, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> and You know, and then she did what you would do, like she took him into the office, helped him calm down, they tried again a little while later. Um, so I know that these moments are really difficult and really challenging. Um, but I also think that, um, that you can kind of build in advance, some capacity for understanding um, and some thoughtfulness about what appropriate responses are with kids rather than just imposing it in a way that doesn't leave them appreciate appreciating what you're trying to do. So I guess in the end, it's a plea for like not seeing the disciplinary side of teaching separate from the teaching side of teaching.
0: So I see you've been teaching college students for a while. Um, Do you think young people are somehow less philosophy minded Um, by the time they get to college than they used to be?
1: So I think there's some ingrained things or just like things about child development that mean the answer is almost inevitably in some Mm -hmm. ways, yes. So, So here's some things that happen in child development that I think kind of tampen down this natural instinct towards philosophy, right? So Gareth Matthews' research showed that kids are spontaneously raising questions in philosophy between age, say, three and eight. And then it kind of slows down right? And it slows down, especially as they go into middle school. And I think a couple things are happening. One is that um, whereas when they were younger, they weren't afraid of seeming silly, because they really weren't worried about what other people thought of them, because maybe they didn't even yet have a clear picture that other people had thoughts about them, right? Like suddenly, they do care what other people think about them, and they care a lot. And they've noticed that there's kinds of questions like, am I dreaming my entire life? That People don't seem to spend a lot of time discussing, so maybe when they have questions like that, they keep them inside, right? Or they keep their arguments to themselves, right? The second thing that's going on is, right, like as they develop this social awareness, they're also just their interests shift. They've, like, they've sorted out a lot of the basics of how, how the world works, and they're interested in their social lives, right, in the way that adolescents appropriately are, Right, so I think it's inevitable that some of like the sheer wonder that a little kid has is going to get lost along the path to adulthood. Even if you can help them hold on to it a little more tightly than they commonly do, uh, you know. Matthews also found that it's easy to get kids back interested in philosophical conversations. Just like you know, you just have to start the conversation with them. Show that you care. Show that you take them seriously. And I've seen this with my own kids. Right, sometimes. Right. Like if I say, hey, I'm wondering about X or Y or Z, what do you think? My kids will push off the conversation. Right. Like, oh, dad, we're not doing this with you again.
0: They don't want to talk about whether a chair is really a chair or there or something. Some.
1: But all I have to do is tell them that somebody else in the world cares and like and that I need their help or that other person might be interested in their view. And then they're on it right? And they want to try and figure it out and offer their assistance. So if I tell them, oh, I was talking to my students and we couldn't figure out, right? like, Or you might say I was talking to a friend or another teacher and we got stuck having this debate. What do you guys think about this debate? Right? Then they're into it. Um, I think that really works well.
0: The other question I had, the other version of what I meant by my question too, is like, do you think, you know, there's all this talk about like, oh kids today are on their phones or they're distracted or they don't have the same mind, you know, kind of concentration level. Is that, do you think that's impacting um, students so that despite the developmental point you're making, which I, I hear you like that somehow there's like a less ability to have the time and space for those deep thoughts at the college level from what you're seeing, having seen a lot of college students over time.
1: So I think there's something to that, right? Like um, I, you know, in the way that adults do philosophy sort of like real philosophical progress requires deep engagement, the ability to make sustained arguments, the ability to sort of read other people making long sustained arguments and then think things through and come up with your own um, like ideas and, um, and arguments and arguments. And uh, that skill, I, I notice it in myself. I sit down to read a book And I get six or seven pages in and I think, Oh, I wonder what's happening on my
0: phone right now. And it's a struggle, right? Wow. You too. So this is like a philosophy, but you're somebody who has to sit and read these deep, you know, uh, articles I imagine.
1: Yeah. You know, I struggle with it sometimes. And so like, I've done a few things like I, I will turn off all notifications when I'm trying to get work done or leave the device in another room. Um, and, uh, you know, it, usually there's like a kind of like critical threshold past like if, if I'm just six or seven pages in, I might be easily distracted. But if I can push past that point, or especially when I'm writing, you know, first 30 minutes, it's easy to knock me off what I'm doing. But once I get really interested in it, really engaged into what the psychologists call flow, then hours will pass and I'll realize I haven't even thought about what might be happening on Twitter. Um, so I do think it's about finding opportunities to like let yourself get into that flow. And I do worry that we don't do that often enough for kids. I especially worry as I watch, like my oldest is in middle school now, they give like teachers give a lot of bite-sized assignments, right? Um, Or assignments that are done on the devices. Make me a PowerPoint presentation about X or, you know, do a research project about Y, but not don't write it up as a paper, you know, put it in some other format that's like quickly and easily and technologically produced. And on the one hand, I totally get why they do this. And there's an, at least a little bit of an argument for it, that like this is how these kids are going to work in the world. So like mastering these digital tools is important for them. But um, I sure wish that there were some projects, right, that required a kind of deeper, longer more sustained engagement. And maybe I'm misremembering, but I kind of think by the time I got to seventh grade, there were more of those projects back then than there are than there are now. And um, and I think that um, it's important to help kids cultivate um, the ability to lose themselves in an intellectual project, but they won't unless we sometimes insist that they do something that requires that level of engagement.
0: Yeah, I guess one of the things you know we are seeing, and there's there was that recent New Yorker article about the English major is dead, and that there's a decline in people majoring in philosophy and other humanities fields. Why, you know, is there a way in which of you're suggesting? Can I rant about
1: that for a second? Sure. sure. You know, yeah. I, like part of the decline for humanities is because we relentlessly talk up the significance of STEM education, and um, and we. Um, uh, like we have a lot of economic anxiety, right? We think I want to make sure that my child gets a job and this education is very expensive. And so I want it to be the kind of education. It's not like that, that, that is almost in a way vocational, not in a pejorative sense, but I know if my child gets a computer science degree, there's a kind of job at the end that that naturally leads to. If they get a business degree, there's a kind of job at the end that that naturally leads to. And I worry, it's like the object of jokes, Right. People think that like if my child majors in English or my child majors in philosophy um, or my child majors in German or whatever it is, that maybe there's not a job at the end of that. Right. But that is absolutely the wrong way to think about this, because a child that majors in one of these humanities subjects is doing exactly what I described before. Right. They are thinking deeply in a sustained way. Right. They're learning to mount evidence and arguments, um, and they're developing skills that are extraordinarily flexible, right? The data on philosophy majors job-wise, right, despite what the politicians want you to think when they crack jokes, is extraordinarily good, right? They're highly employed, um, and they're like earning good salaries, and of course they are, because like what you learn when you learn philosophy is how to think carefully and critically, and there's really no profession that you might enter where somebody who thinks carefully and critically isn't a value. So this is not anti-STEM in any way. Like like STEM education is great, and we need scientists and we need engineers, um, and we need people, right, that like have mastered like the basics of business. It's not really an anti-business screed. Otherwise, it's just to say that like, we've collectively lost our way. In not realizing that somebody who say studies English or studies philosophy is absolutely acquiring skills that will help them, that will help them in their profession, will also just help them as people um, and help them as citizens, and we should want lots of those folks floating around too.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you worry that there, that without a, sort of some of the things you've suggested in this conversation, like. Putting more philosophy at a lower kind of level of K twelve education, or you know, kind of uh, counter counteracting these trends in humanities. Um, that, that you know, what what's you know what's at stake?
1: Yeah, I I, I do worry about it. Like I you know, um, I I don't know if you can draw a straight line causation at a social level is always very hard to untangle. But we have got um, like a lot of people who engage in a kind of endless conspiracy style thinking of, um, uh, of um, fitting facts into a preferred theory, right? Rather than testing their theories against the facts in the world. And, um, and I do think, right, that, um, that that probably reflects some educational failures, not just educational failures. There's a lot of, a lot of things to say about technological change and the way the media has become fractured and the way the internet works to always serve up something next that you're going to agree with. Right. You know, like there's lots of work um, in psychology and sociology and and from the philosophy side among epistemologists on how we end up in echo chambers and, um, and, uh, um, and epistemic bubbles. And I write about that in the knowledge chapter in the book. Um, But Uh, you know, I think like good philosophy education can be a kind of inoculation against this, right? Like the training to always think like, how is it that I might be wrong, right? Um, And um, like to really want to engage and understand the ideas and arguments that other people have, and to be open to the idea that you've made mistakes. um, If we could find a way to um, cultivate that through education, Um, then I think we could be um, in a really better place where we are now and maybe in a better place than where we're headed.
0: And I guess, explain why that's different than, you know, we certainly see a lot of efforts about digital citizenship or citizenship efforts or civics classes. There are ways in which schools try to get at some of the ideas that you're talking about. What's what's really the core difference in what you're just... You
1: know, I I don't know what a civics class looks like in 2023, right? But I know what the version looked like that I was in in the early 90s. And um, it communicated important information, right? Which is to say, um, you know, here's how government works, right? There are three branches of government. This is how a bill becomes a law. Um, And kids do need information about the world. But I don't remember... Anybody, really, until I got to a philosophy class, you know, having a conversation about whether free speech is important, right? And, um, and why it's important. And then, like, really digging deep and pushing hard on, are there things you shouldn't be allowed to say? And if there were things that you weren't going to be allowed to say, who's going to get to decide what those are? Or similarly, is democracy important, right? There's like lots of surveys that show young people are less likely to say that living in a democracy is important than older people. That terrifies me, right? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I hope that educators are out there having conversations, but not conversations that are one way, let me tell you why democracy is important, but um, are really inviting kids to think through these deep questions of political philosophy, right? That Locke and Montesquieu and all the people who influenced our founders thought through. Um, And and what I like to do is let kids know that, that they can be part of those conversations too, right? Like, let's think about, Hobbes, who lived through the English Civil War and came out with this set of views, and Locke, who came out with a different set of views, and which one makes more sense to you? Um, and so, um, uh, you know, if, if that's what civics class is, then yay civics class. And if civics class isn't yet that, then I think there's more that we can do um, to educate citizens.
0: I came away from the book with a better appreciation, I think, for how much thought has been put into some of these same questions that maybe a kid comes up with naturally, but then philosophers that have really dug into. And and I guess there's some maybe comfort in the fact that these ideas are age old, as you've referenced, as we've talked about, but um, but then again... Is or is it maybe like this philosophical hamster wheel that will never get off? Like, are there are there like uh, are there are there answers to be had, or is it just something that we just all have to just kind of keep going through as a society? Yeah. So
1: I think some people worry about philosophy because they think it doesn't make progress in the way that science or engineering does, right? So like we can all figure out like, oh, what were the big scientific discoveries of last year, and we can feel good about funding that. And if you ask what were the big philosophical discoveries of last year, right? It doesn't quite work the same way. In part because we don't achieve the same kind of consensus, right, on views and philosophy, right? Like there are folks who think democracy is good, there are folks who think that other forms of government would be better. There are people who think that there's objective truth in the world and people who are relativists about truth. I think it's a mistake two twofold. One is I think it's a mistake to think that um, philosophy is not making progress, right? People's arguments and understandings are getting more refined. You figure out what doesn't work and, you know, you narrow the range of options or maybe you discover new options. Like the conversations really do change and improve and deepen over thousands of years, even if they don't achieve final answers. Um, so I think there is a kind of, um, of progress to be made. I also think there's something really valuable in the search for the answers even if we don't arrive at final answers or an arrive at answers that we agree with so one aspiration i have for the book is, i say as i say early on, like kids are actually going to be philosophers with or without you. I've written this book for adults. Kids are kind of my Trojan horse. I do want you to see them and talk to them differently. And I think there's payoff to that. But I really want to help adults recapture some of the wonder that kids have at the world, right? Like we were all puzzled by this place once, and it is a really puzzling place. And it's hard to understand what our place is within it and whether our lives matter and how and how we, should behaving, how we should be behaving. And I think there'd be something of shame right, in being a human being who, who goes through the world without ever grappling with these kinds of conceptions and forming your own views about them, your own conception of what a good life is, your own conception of um, the relationship between human beings and the rest of the universe. Um, so I think there's a kind of joy to be had in the enterprise, even if, Um, uh, the conversations we know will persist long beyond us.
0: I've seen reviews of your book that mention that the advice gets a lot harder to follow of when the kids get a little older than that, you know, five-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, and then they get into adolescence, I guess. Obviously, your kids have now grown up a little more since the book came out or since you researched it, since I know the publishing schedules are, are, you know, there's that react. There's that delay. So I guess what is one revision or addition that you'd have based on experiences since you wrote the book?
1: <laughs> oh, that's a really great question. So, like, like kids are absolutely a moving target. They're changing every day. And as I said, like, kids in general, I think, become sort of less... Um, uh, naturally inclined towards philosophy as they get older, and then my kids in particular, like my younger one, Hank, will be like, if I start a conversation, i will be like, "Are you going to put this in a book?"
0: A little skepticism at your own yeah methods, yeah. Here, that's right.
1: Or, or he, or he's, or he's learned to kind of flip it around and instead of like letting me say, "What do you think?" He'll be like, "I want to know what you think. I want to hear you work it through, right?" So I've got some particular challenges, um, you know, carrying it through um, with with my own kids, um, but. Um, you know, as I said before, like, I think even though um, it becomes more challenging, like you can still find ways to engage them, especially if you meet with them where they are with the kinds of issues they're concerned with, or as I said before, enlist them to help others. So what's an addition or a change that I uh, that I would make? Um, You know, I do still have like, really great philosophical conversations with my kids, even though they're somewhat less frequent. Now that they're older, maybe somewhat less funny. They're, like, more serious, more adult conversations. If I was writing the book again, I'd include a chapter about death. Um, uh, And we've had some interesting, challenging conversations um, uh, about death. Um, As far as... uh, as far as changes, I don't know if I'd make changes, actually, because it kind of captures them at a moment in time, um, which is ephemeral. And, and part of what I want to say to parents and teachers is like, really, uh, really take this in and enjoy it because it's like a super cool uh, time of childhood.
0: Well, lots of ground here covered. Thank you so much for taking the time today um, for talking with us.
1: This is really a blast. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we look at big issues in education. If you like the show, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to. And make sure to sign up for our Ed Surge Podcast newsletter. It's free on our site, edsurge.com. Go up to newsletter, where you can find links to resources that we mention in each episode. And you can just stay up to date with what we're working on. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Special thanks this week to my wife, Leah. She's also a journalist. She's the one who first found this book, Nasty Brutish and Short, at the local library and pointed it out to me. And she helped craft the questions for this episode. And thanks to Rebecca Koenig for editing help this episode. Music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thank you for listening.